Hello, everyone, and thanks for joining with us for this week's podcast. This week, Tim McAlpine continues our new series, While We Wait. And Tim is a good friend of Southview's and is the chaplain at Trinity Christian School here in Calgary. The best way to know what's going on at Southview is by checking out our weekly viewpoint, and you can find a link to our viewpoint in the episode description of this podcast, or you can go on Realm and join the group Southview Family Updates, and that will make sure you're always getting the weekly viewpoint in your inbox. And if you're new with us here in this digital space, we would love to hear from you, and you can find an online connection card at the bottom of that viewpoint, along with a prayer request form so that we can support and join you in prayer. And additionally, you can always find us on Instagram and Facebook. But now today, no matter how you're joining with us, may each of our hearts be open and expectant because God is here and Jesus invites us to bring all that we are and all that we're currently carrying to him. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, let's seek the face of God together. try that again. Hi, Southview. I was given one simple instruction before I came up today. Uh, Turn your mic on. Not a great start. Always a joy to be with you. And uh, I have to say, between the hospitality of of Hannah, the the incredible animation, and and the worship leading of Mr. Shretsky in the band, feels like Southview might be hoarding some of the talent. And so we're going to have to ask you to start spreading some of that around. Um... Truly a joy to be back with you, and uh, as we look at our text today, I was thinking about a specific date in time when a magnificent event took place that really changed my life for a brief period of time. It was April 1st, 1990, uh, the greatest sporting event took place in the Sky Dome when uh, the Ultimate Warrior would wrestle Hulk Hogan for the WWF Championship belt. Anyone? No? This was a big deal to me. Eight-year-old Tim w- was into this, and, and I was a massive Ultimate Warrior fan, and he would actually, it looked as though Hogan was going to take the match, and then he went to do a leg drop, missed, <laughs> shockingly. No one saw it coming. I didn't. And then the Ultimate Warrior would pounce on Hogan and win the match, and it was incredible. And that that type of excitement lasted for a while. Wrestling was a big part of my childhood uh, until someone explained to me that it was scripted, and then I learned what that meant, and then I thought it was super lame. But but wrestling has is, this isn't a new thing. It didn't you know show up in the 70s. It's actually been around a long time. In in um, in fact, in the in the near uh, in ancient Near East, they used to use wrestling. To, to solve legal matters, which got me to thinking with how backlogged our courtrooms are. <laughs> I don't know. Could we try that again? You know, forget the lawsuit. We're just going to meet in the ring and we'll settle it like this. But I do think on a more serious note, this, the idea of wrestling is not foreign, if we're honest with ourselves, to anyone. There's probably seasons in each of our lives where we're wrestling through something, where we're grappling with, with an idea or a relationship or a circumstance. Maybe we're even wrestling with God. And I think it's really important when, we, when it comes to wrestling, if, if we're to wrestle well, that we understand what we're wrestling for. 
what is the desired outcome of what we're trying to pursue? Is it actually just our reputation? Is it actually just our comfort? Is it actually just to be right? When we're wrestling with things in life, is it that we don't like what's happening and we want that to change? Or are we really, really wrestling with something and we just need God to help? If you have your Bibles, I'd ask you to turn to Genesis 32. We're going to be taking a look at a wrestling match that takes place between Jacob and God. I'm not going to read the entire thing. I am going to read a few verses here just to open us up. But friends, this is the word of the Lord. Genesis 32, picking up in verse 22. It says, The same night he arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his eleven children, and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. And Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, Let me go, for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, What is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, Please tell me your name. But he said, Why is it you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. Would you pray with me? God of grace, I thank you for your word. I thank you that it is true, living and active. Thank you that you can and do the impossible in and through it by the work of your spirit. So we ask that you would be so kind tonight. Illuminate the truths that you would have for us. Give us ears to hear, soft hearts to apply from you the truth that can set us free. We pray all these things by your grace and for your glory in the name of Jesus. Amen. Just to catch us up to speed, uh, and I'm going to do this really quickly just to give a little context. Um, I have to say, my friend Brett, Brett, your pastor, Brett Ashton, did say to me, did you get the email? And I said, yes. And he said, did you see it said 25 minutes? And I said, yes. And he said, but you're McAlpine, so that's probably irrelevant. And I said, that's pretty rude of you to talk about my dad that way. But (laughs) anyways, I'm going to go through this really, really quickly. So the, the life of Jacob begins, and his life begins with struggle. He is a twin. His twin brother, his name is Esau. They're in the womb, and in the womb, they're already wrestling. And, and, and then as they're born, Jacob is actually grabbing Esau's heel. So there's already distress between these two to begin their life. You fast forward quite a few years, and suddenly they're adults. And now uh, they've determined their roles within their life. Esau is this rugged, he's outdoorsy, he does the hunting, and, and Jacob's at home, and he does some cooking, and he, he's really good at cooking, apparently, because one day Esau comes back from hunting, and he's like, I'm dying, I'm so hungry, please give me some food. He'd made this stew. And Jacob's like, give me your birthright, which would have been kind of his inheritance that was entitled to the firstborn son of the family. Esau is like, I'm going to die anyways. What's the point? Might as well just give it to you. Take my birthright. Please just give me some food. He gives him some food, and it's almost instant regret. And suddenly he realizes what he's done, and this resentment starts to build towards Jacob. This relationship has never been healthy. 
Then Jacob, who is a bit of a mama's boy, and his mom really liked him, uh, catches, his mom catches wind uh, that uh, his father is, is Isaac, and Isaac is not doing well, and he's starting to pass away. And, and so his mom says to Jacob, I want you to go and deceive your father because I want you to receive the blessing that should go to the firstborn. Now, in the meantime, Isaac has told Esau, hey, I'm not going to be here much longer. Please prepare me a meal. Come back, and I'll give you your blessing. Esau is out doing what his father asked him to do. Isaac cooks a meal. His mom cooks a meal for him, actually, and then he dresses himself up. Apparently, Esau was a little bit hairier than Isaac. Isaac was quite smooth, and so he puts some fake hair on, goes in. His dad can't see him really well, and his father ends up blessing him. So not only has he taken his birthright, but he's also taken the blessing from his older brother Esau. And then in, uh, in Genesis chapter I forget which chapter, chapter 27, uh, Isaac, uh, or pardon me, Esau finally says, um, I'm going to stay here until my dad dies. And then he says in his words, and then I will kill Jacob. Things have escalated. And I promise I won't talk that fast through the whole thing, but that's kind of where we, we get. And so, so then Jacob's mom is like, hey, you need to leave because your brother's going to kill you. I equate this actually growing up. Uh, my older brother was quite a bit bigger than me and I had a bigger mouth than him. And there would be times when dad wasn't home and Todd was really going to get me. And my mom would say, go lock yourself in the bathroom. And I would do so. So it's kind of like that, you know, mom's protecting her little boy. And so she sends him off and, and he goes and lives with his uncle, but his uncle actually deceives the deceiver. Jacob is known as a deceiver. Laban deceives him in marrying the daughter that he didn't want to marry. He works for him for seven years. Okay, so, so, so now Jacob has worked for his uncle for seven years. He's married the girl that he doesn't want to, and Laban says to him, work for me for another seven, and you can have the daughter that you actually want. He does so, 14 years. In spite of, in spite of Laban's deceit in Jacob's life, God continues to bless him because Back in, Gen- in Genesis uh, 20, so, oh goodness, forgive me. This is why you got to look at your notes and not just ramble. God, God makes a promise. God makes a promise to Isaac. Uh, God makes a promise actually to Abraham and then carries it to Isaac that he is going to bless his family, that they're going to multiply more than the stars of the sky, more than the dust of the earth. And in light of that promise... God continues to bless Jacob, even as he's being mistreated by Laban. Jacob decides he's had enough, and so he's going to leave his uncle. He's going to flee his uncle, and he takes with him all that he's profited, and, he, and God has blessed everything that he touches turns to gold. He's got all these animals and all of this profit, and he's sent on his way, and he leaves Laban, and Laban doesn't like this. So now Laban is pursuing him. So this is the situation Jacob has himself in. His brother Esau, who has said he's going to kill him, is now going to be in front of him. And Laban, who he's just left, is behind him. Jacob, according to Genesis 31, is actually just doing what he is told to do. God told him to go back to the land that he's from, that God's going to give him that land. So he's being obedient, but he's got Esau in front of him, Laban behind him. This is the situation that he finds himself are you with me? That was a lot, a lot really fast and I totally understand. But this is just so you get the context. It's a, it's, a, it's a dire situation for Jacob. So we pick up in verse 1 and 2 and it says, Jacob went on his way and the angels of God met him. And when Jacob saw them, he said, this is God's camp. So he called the name of that place Mahanaim. Now, why is that significant? That's significant because here's Jacob in the situation that I just described really quickly. And, and he would be so distressed. He would be so stressed. He'd be worried about Laban behind him. He'd be worried about Esau in front of him. And then God allows these angels to come. If you were to go back to Genesis 28, 
verses 12 to 15, we read this. And this is Jacob. Jacob has this dream. And he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven, and behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. So he sees angels, and there would be a correlation between seeing angels and then this. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you. So there's a promise. I'm going to give you this land. And to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land for I will not leave you until I have done what I promised you. So Jacob has this dream prior to this experience, prior to this situation that he's found himself, where God says, I'm going to bring you back to this land. I'm going to give you this land. I'm going to be with you, and I'm not going to fail until I do exactly what I've promised you. In the midst of this dire situation, where it looks awful for Jacob, God sends angels to remind him of his presence and his promise. This is God's camp. And God is going to be with you, and God is going to be faithful to the promise that he made to you, and he is going to be present with you throughout this, which you think would have to, in some capacity, alleviate some of the terror, some of the fear that Jacob might be experiencing. Psalm 34, verse 7 says, The angel of the Lord encamps all those who fear him and delivers them. And it just causes me to, to pause and reflect and think, how often when I'm faced with a challenging situation or I'm even facing the consequences of my own action, do I f- quickly forget God's faithfulness in my life? How quickly I can forget how he's carried me through. The, the, the way he's cleaned up the messes that I've made the way he's protected me from those that have come after me, the way that, the way that he's provided when it, it seemed that there was nothing. And I can forget this because all I'm focused on is the situation or the circumstance in front of me. All I'm focused on is the Laban and the Esau in my life, and I forget who God has promised to be and where he promised to be. And God, in his kindness, provides this reminder to Jacob John Calvin once said, even while God is stretching out his hand to help them, scarcely one out of a hundred raises his eyes towards heaven. So God provides this reminder and goes on, and Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, in the land of Seir, to the country of Edom, instructing them, thus you shall say to my Lord Esau, thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned, with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen and donkeys, flocks, male servants and female servants. I have sent them to tell my Lord in order that I may find favor in your sight. In other words, Jacob is trying to butter up Esau. He's sent his servants ahead saying, I've got this massive gift for you. Are we good? We're okay. Remember, I (laughs) took your birthright, took your blessing, but hey, look, I got a donkey. But a lot of them So the messenger goes, and verse 6 says, And the messenger returned to Jacob, saying, We came to your brother Esau, and he is coming to meet you. 
and there are 400 men with him. Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. He divided the people who were with him and the flocks and the herds and the camels into two camps, thinking if Esau comes to the one camp and attacks it, then the camp that is left will escape. I love this because it's like you send the messenger and so what did he say? Well, he's there. Yeah, I saw him. He's there and he's got 400 men with him. Oh, why? Look, for what? What purpose? What are these 400 men? Are they coming to get me? Are they, are they mad? Is he mad at me? Did he like the gift? You know, I just, I just hear this conversation happening between Jacob and his servant as he's doing his best as only Jacob does, to manipulate the situation to work in his favor. And he's greatly distressed. It's almost as though Jacob's saying, I, I've sent him these gifts, but what if it doesn't go the way that I think it's going to go? And he's acting pretty desperate here. And what he's actually done, he's split up his camps into two, and he's created a scenario where if Esau were to catch him, if Esau is to catch up to him, he's going to have to cross a stream to get him. And at least one of the camps could live. Again, just in this desperation, just trying to self-preserve, do what he can to get what he wants out of the situation. And then we get to verse 9 through 12. And Jacob is, is in a situation where he does something we don't see him do up to this point. And he prays. It says, And Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham, and God of my father Isaac, O Lord, who said to me, Return to your country, to your kindred, that I may do good to you. So he's saying, God, like, this is who you have said that you are. This is, this is what you've promised to me. This, you, you've told, you, I'm just doing what you've told me to do. I'm going back to my country, and I'm in this situation. And I think verse 10 demonstrates a different posture within Jacob where he's at a place of desperation and he's just going to say I can't do this anymore I can't do this anymore I've been I've been wrestling with my brother and with my uncle my whole life and I just I can't do this anymore and he says in verse 10 I am not worthy of the least of the deeds of the steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant He's acknowledging all of God's blessing in his life with this posture and this statement of, and I don't deserve any of it. Nothing that I've done in my life has demonstrated to you why you should do this for me, and yet in your kindness and your grace and your mercy and your compassion, you have given this to me, and I'm not worthy of any of it. It's almost as though his, his fear is starting to actually drive his faith. This is why, I don't even think fear is a bad thing if used properly. I think fear can actually help cultivate our, when, when our fear brings us to a place where it says, I don't know what else to do, I'm just going to trust you. As Edmund Clowney put it, true faith is not a flaccid acceptance of a better state of affairs it is a drawn and driven, drawn by the bursting recognition that God is real and that he is here with me. And so his faith starts to grow and he's, and he's starting to acknowledge that he's not worthy. And I think there's, I think there's um, a really nice, a good 
picture, nice, a good picture of this, found in, in Luke 18. And, and Jesus tells this parable of, of, of a Pharisee and a tax collector, and they go up to pray, and the Pharisee is, he is a lot better than everyone else, and he lets you know, and he explains all these wonderful things that he does, and even in the text, it says that he said, thank you that I'm not like this tax collector. I'm not like this guy. And it goes on to say in chapter 18, verse 13 of the Gospel of Luke, but the tax collector standing far off would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God be merciful to me, a sinner. And it says that he is the one who went down justified. It's this, this picture in, in Jacob's life where he's saying, I am, I am not worthy, but my faith is leading me to believe that you could, God, that you are unchanging in character, that you could actually provide me the mercy I need in this moment, even though this is a situation that I've done this to myself. I'm not a victim here. I made the choices that I made. I deceived the people I deceived. I'm suffering the consequences, and I'm desperate for you to do what? He says in verse 11, Please deliver me from the hand of my brothers, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him that he may come and attack me and the mothers with the children. But you said, I will surely do good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for the multitudes. I don't know um, if you've ever found yourself in a situation where maybe you're facing the consequences for, the, for your actions. And it feels pretty heavy. And the thought crosses your mind, maybe I should pray about this. And it's countered with another thought that says, he's not going to listen. He, he will reject you this time. You don't have a hope. You, you've, really, you've really blown it. You've damaged too many relationships. You've made too much of a mess. And God is not going to listen. You know... Christian, we actually don't have to listen to or give any power to a voice of condemnation. And I see that type of faith in Jacob. It's almost like it's, it's premeditated or proactive that, like he is the, that the enemy may come to me and, and speak condemnation to me. So instead of that, I'm going to say I'm not worthy, but God, you've been kind. You've been merciful. You have poured out your favor in my life. Nothing that I do deserves it. You have given it to me because of that's who you are. And maybe you're here tonight, and that's part of what you're wrestling with. You're wrestling with some consequences. You know, we, we have a deal in our house with our kids. Um, I wrote a note for them that if they do something really bad, uh, they can present me with the note. It's more for me than for them because I can be a little reactionary in the moment when I'm presented with information. And so the note begins with, you know, mom and dad, I'm in trouble, I need help. I actually, like, we haven't gotten it a lot, but I always hate getting it. Namely because it means my kid is dealing with consequence of sin, and I know what that's like. And no parent wants that for their kid. But it always helps me, you know, because I'm a broken man, not react. And I'm able to listen. and potentially able to provide love and care in the moment when, when they, maybe they don't deserve it, you know? Maybe I can actually exemplify their Heavenly Father's heart for them. And what, I, what I'm reminded by even of Jacob's words is, our Heavenly Father doesn't need us to bring a note that we're covered. 
that we're covered by his son. So we can come to him, and as the author of Hebrews says, with confidence enter into the throne room of grace and receive grace and mercy in times of trouble. Jacob's faith demonstrates that, and, and, and then I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to jump ahead here to verse 22. The same night he rose, took his two wives, two female servants, and the 11 children, and crossed the ford of Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else he had. So, so Jacob is, is remained with the last of the straggling sheep, and he's, he's kind of moved down near the water, and then realizes that he's not alone. Realizes that he's not alone. Verse 24 and 25 said that, And Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until daybreak. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint, and he wrestled with him. Something happens here where Jacob suddenly realizes not what he's wrestling, but who he's wrestling. And this isn't about a wrestling match, or this isn't about a battle with his brother, and it's not about Laban, but this is actually between him and God, and he begins to wrestle with God. And Jacob's struggle was with God. And I, and I think about this, his, his struggle becomes a desperation to receive the blessing. A desperation to receive from God his blessing. And, and it's as though, like, as the wrestling match continues, his desperation increases. His desperation to receive from God what he needs and wants, that no matter what, he had to prevail. I mean, you think about what he did, the, the, the extent that he was willing to go to receive the blessing from his father. He's demonstrated that he's willing to go to any length to get his blessing, and here he is wrestling for that blessing. You know, the prophet Hosea would, would talk about this wrestling match centuries later. And he did so in, in Hosea 12, 2 to 6. He did so to remind not just the tribes of Jacob, but also even us today. That just as Jacob was guilty before God, we are guilty before God. But God dealt with him and in his deceptions. But prevailed with God as he wept and sought his grace. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go, for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me, just desperately hanging on. I can't let go until I receive your blessing. I know that if the sun rises tomorrow and I don't receive this blessing, I'm going to see my brother, and that might be it. And I can't let that, I, I need your blessing. I'm desperate for you to do as only you can do. Your faith truly wins when it knows that all is lost and clings to God alone. You know, in verse 26, where it says, you got to let me go, the day's going to break. If you were to look at Exodus 30, 20, where God said, would later say to Moses, you cannot see my face, for anyone who sees my face may not live. And yet Jacob continues to hold fast. He continues to wrestle. He continues to hold on. And he looked upon the face of his maker and was spared. For the first time that we see Jacob is wrestling for the right thing. Not to preserve his life, 
not to build and prosper his own kingdom, but to right his relationship with God, to receive his blessing from God. Israel, the name that God gives to Jacob, reflects normally, normally was taken to mean that God prevails. But what we see here is the Lord almost like turns the meaning around and is given this name Jacob. Jacob has prevailed with God in the name Jacob desperate, pardon me, in that name Jacob's desperate faith is acknowledged by God. You're desperate. You know, and, and it's much like the way Jesus would in the Gospels say things like your faith has made you well. Matthew 9, 22, where Jesus heals the woman uh, who had been bleeding for 12 years. You'd see it again in Mark 5, 34, where Jesus says, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. There's the 10 lepers in Luke 17, 19. There's the blind beggar in Luke 18, 82. Jesus links faith and healing without those exact words, but your faith has made you well in Matthew 18, Matthew 8, 13, and 15, 28. The healing that those that they would experience in the Gospels is expressed, it's in a, in a Greek word, sozo, which would mean to preserve or to rescue or to save from death or to keep alive. Your faith has made you well. He's saying that their, their faith, this, this confidence in him, this, this confidence that I need your blessing, I know that that's all, that I, this is more important than anything else, confidence in that had, its mean, uh, had been the means of restoration, had been the, the ability, that's what brought about this restoration, was this faith in the reality that God could provide what he needs. One author said, the power of Christ was the effect, was affected, pardon me, what was affected the cure, but his power was applied in the connection with their faith. You know, Jacob's wrestling didn't display a lack of faith, but the opposite. His wrestling was an acknowledgement that God could and would be the one who could restore and bless the mess that he had made. Verse 30 says, In the morning Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, the face of God. It is because I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. You know, and, and, and into the next chapter, in chapter 33, Jacob would meet Esau. Esau would run to him and embrace him. But I like how Edmund Clowney put it. He said, the favor Jacob, uh, the favor Jacob saw on Esau's face was a favor given by God. He had been delivered not just from the hand of Esau, as he had prayed, but from the hand of God. And so Jacob wrestles, and Jacob receives this blessing. Life's not perfect for him after that. <laughs> it's funny, because his first interaction with Esau, even though Esau runs to him, he's still kind of like, hey, do you want to just keep the gifts anyways? But I think there's some things from this text that we can take and, and apply to our lives. The first is this. I think desperation can lead to transformation. Uh, I have some friends that they have this saying, and they'll say that they received the gift of desperation. 
that their lives had become so difficult and so terrible that they would wave the white flag and whatever it took to receive the healing and mend the brokenness in their lives, they're willing to do that. And that came because they received this gift of desperation. And maybe you can relate. Maybe you're here today and that's your story. Choices have left you desperate. And perhaps today is the day that you can surrender and find new life and purpose in Jesus. For a lot of years, I, I wasted my desperation. I allowed it to just create more anxiety and, and cause more problems. But what I'm finding is in that place of desperation where it feels like fear is gripping is where faith can come alive. So desperation can lead to transformation. The second thing would be in your wrestling, ask for desires but cling to his promises. Really wrestle for what matters. You know, uh, Psalm 37, 4 says, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. I think um, sometimes that verse, I think, is taken to mean that I, A plus B equals C, and I guarantee if you do this, you're going to get exactly what you want. And the problem is, is I know a lot of people that really, really love Jesus, that are faithful, that serve him, that have asked for certain things and not received it. Uh, June 28th, it was eight years ago, uh, one, of my, one of my best friends were about the same age, we were pastors together in the city of Penticton, and, uh, and my friend Jamie ended up getting cancer and with 18 months had, had passed away, and, and I remember praying with him. And, and Jamie delighted in the Lord, and Jamie believed that God could heal him, but he didn't. Jamie would take the opportunity to cling to the promises. And we would have conversations, and he would say, Tim, I'm gonna, my cancer's going to go away. Maybe here or, or maybe in the afterlife, but, but I'm going to be cancer-free, and I'm going to cling to that. It didn't mean we didn't ask for it, but his hope was found in, I know for a fact that Jesus will restore my body to the way it was supposed to be. And finally, Jesus wrestled for us so we don't have to. What do I mean by that? Are we talking about the importance of, you know, I mean, I think there's, there's times in life where we do need to wrestle. And I think there's things that are worth wrestling with. But as Edmund Clowney put, he said, the Lord of glory humbles himself so that the helpless sinner may receive his blessing. And when we look at Jacob, Jacob truly is, is a foreshadowing of another wrestling match that would take place. This time in a garden, in the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus would be sweating drops of blood because he would be so anxious about what's to come. And he would say, if this cup may pass, but not my will, but yours be done. That Jesus was willing to not only wrestle with, but conquer our greatest enemies of sin and death. That Jesus would wrestle with the devil in the desert and remain sinless. So if we have found ourselves in deserts and we've fallen short, he has said, I've got you covered. I'm going to impute, I'm going to give you my right living, my righteousness you're going to have. 
Jesus wrestled with loneliness. Are you here? Are you lonely? Do you feel that you don't know anyone? Do you feel that your friends have abandoned you? Jesus wrestled with that and has said, I'm going to be present with you. I'll never leave you nor forsake you. Jesus knows what it's like to wrestle with being treated unjustly, falsely accused, and even murdered for things that he didn't do. Do you know that? Do you know that tension of wrestling with unjust or injustice? Maybe, maybe, maybe at this point it's just time to say, I'm going to leave this with the Lord. I'm going to let him take with it. He's promised that vengeance is the Lord's and I can leave that with him. Jesus wrestled with the weight and the reality that God the Father would turn his back on him, that he would actually fully absorb the full wrath of God, that he would take on himself our sin on the cross. And, and, and we can... I don't, know, I don't know what you're wrestling with. I don't know what's going on that, that's causing you, potentially us, to want to divide our camps, to, to want to try and orchestrate our lives so that we can make sure that everything is okay. But here's what I promise. And, and we have this in his word that Jesus is Redeeming, he is reconciling, he is restoring all things to himself. That that as we've sung tonight, today, he will wipe away all our tears. That there's coming a day that whatever you're wrestling with will be a forgotten. It won't be a thing. And you'll be standing in the presence of Jesus singing, Holy, 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 worthy is the Lamb who was slain. And maybe that's all you, like right now, maybe there's nothing, there's nothing anyone can say that can provide you any sort of solace or comfort, but I promise you the day is coming when this happens. Because Jesus wrestled, and he is the one that we need to look to as the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So we can cling to that promise. And we can say this and we can believe this and we can live in this confidently because of what we will remember and receive in communion right now. This, I love, you guys remember Clyde? Do you remember him? Call it the countercultural kingdom of God meal of communion. Where we come with other men and women of faith. And we break the bread to remember his body broken for us. And we take the cup and we drink and we remember his blood shed for us. Would you pray with me? 
God of grace, we ask that you would use this bread and cup to be spiritual food for us. May we know your hope, your encouragement, and your love. We pray in Jesus' name. So I encourage you to take the bread, hold it, and remember and now receive the body of Christ broken for you. And as you hold the cup, just still for a moment. Remembering that we're covered. So would you receive from him, this is his blood shed for you. Let's partake together. God of grace, we thank you. Thank you for your kindness to continue to work in spite of us. Lord, that it is not our good works that draws you close, but that in our messes and in our deceit and in our brokenness, you come to us. And you remind us of your promises. And God, you will even allow us to be in seasons of desperation so that you can bring about the transformation that you desire, that you could make us more and more like you. And Father, you, you know every person in this room, all that we're going through. And I'd ask that you would be so kind even just in this moment to bring to mind a promise from you that can, we can cling to. Thank you, Jesus, that you did, that you wrestled so that we don't have to, so that we can just receive from you be made new creations in you, that you actually did live perfectly on our behalf, that as we've just remembered and received that your body was broken, that your blood was poured out, but that you rose again, that you ascended, you're seated at the right hand of the Father, that you are interceding on our behalf, and we long for the day when you return and make all things right. In the meantime, as we wrestle in the in-between, we just ask for your continued grace. We love you, Jesus. pray all these things by your grace and for your glory. Amen. If you would be so kind as to stand to receive one more blessing from our God through his word. Now may the Lord of peace himself 
give you peace at all times in every way. The Lord be with you all. Go in peace.